Welcome to Word of Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is uh, 11-7-2021, and we're continuing our worship service with the thought of the week and prayer. Okay, once each one of you home, the Spirit continues to be very, very special to our, our, our identity in Christ, just as Jesus promised in the Word of Truth. The Father will send another counselor to be with you forever. Take it from John. Okay, John 14, 16. So also, when we are resurrected, we will be with the Lord forever. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. If the Spirit will be with us forever, then he becomes a part of our eternal identity. Our identity is not only what he does for us, but also what he is to us. We are joined to the Spirit, and we will forever be identified with his capabilities. Not just ours, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Take it from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. We are able to comprehend the deep things of God, but only by means of our spirituality, heightened perceptiveness, capability. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. But we may understand what God has really given us. Think from Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. What God has really given us in our inheritance it is what God has called us to be. It is our destiny. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance, each inheritance in this faith, they can be chapter 1, verse 18. Our consciousness of who we are in Christ, our new identity, a new man is realized by means of the spirit of truth. The spirit is so testified with our spirit that we are God's children. Take up Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The main focus is back to back that we are saved. Those who are not saved, you have a choice to be saved at this moment of time, even though you have not accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. We are saved by faith in Christ, not of work, not of anything that we should do, but Christ did all the work while his humanity, while he was on the cross, and God just sent for our sins, not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world through his humanity. His deity was not just, but his humanity, the person of Christ, was. So therefore, if you, if you have it, not believe in Christ, you have a tendency to do so right now, Wherever you are, you, you can do it privately in, in a moment of time, in a moment of your soul, just believing in Christ, and at this time, you will have eternal life. Well, whoever believes in Christ will have life. Whoever rejects Christ, the wrath of God will remain to you. At this time, as we have our prayer given to us by Dwight, you will lead us in prayer. Thank you very much for that, Dave. Um, before I continue, are there any special requests that you would like me to mention? 
and in prayer. You can always keep uh, the thoughts of uh, all your concerns in your heart and, and um, give them privately to God. So um, how about um, uh, just to those who are sick among us? Uh, I know we have, don't want to forget Dave's daughter who is still struggling. So um, if you could pray for them. Lenora. I also want to uh, lift up uh, Kenny, Kenneth Haddon, and Gail, my sister. Uh, continue as, uh, if you can lift him up in prayer and his family. Okay. Oh dear. Oh dear. All right, let us bow before our Father in prayer. Uh, First of all, I have to say, coming off a profound Q&A session that we just did and touching on significant points of many great relations of God, who has freely given us his spirit that we may comprehend all that he has done and the deep things. Um, he's done these things for us and to us in Christ, far exceeding anything we could ask or imagine. And this is the God that we are, we are praying to, the God who also tells us we can come to him calling him Abba, Father. We pray to you, Lord, Father of, Father of Jesus Christ and of us. We pray for our safety and help on this battlefield, things that we must do just to subsist, whether financially, occupationally. Um, and we pray for the, the global body of Christ in every nation against persecutions and man-made and natural disasters. And we also pray um, for those within our church, the Waters Truth Church. We pray especially for those that you have put in our lives, um, whether our family and friends and acquaintances. Um, give us the boldness to seize the numerous opportunities and, and glorious opportunities we have to serve you with the information that you have blessed us with beyond human understanding. You have taught us with spiritual words. Um, and taught us spiritual truth, and, and we have the mind of Christ. And especially I want to pray for the sick among us, um, Dave's daughter, for example, and, and Kenneth and Gail and, and their families. Um, you know, we know you know the details of everybody's situation, Father, and we ask that you would watch over them to, um, to heal them as, as your will um, would have it. And we pray that we would um, continue to revel in glory in, in what you have done for us, the inheritance that we have in Christ. And uh, I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dwight, for, for that. And also, Dave, for uh, the thought of the week. Appreciate both of you. We are continuing. <clears throat> it's um, You have notes. Uh, we're... We're going to look at John chapter 17 and verse 1 today. And that is, says, After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. After Jesus' discourse to the eleven disciples, he now turns his attention to the Father in prayer. I cannot be sure if the disciples were present for this prayer, but 
it is quite possible they heard these prophetic and foundational words. As we turn our attention to his prayer, we should especially note the tone and perspective with which he addresses the Father. We can glean much from the Son's direct communication with the Father. It is a very pivotal time in the life of Jesus. He knows the time for his departure is very near, and his prayer reflects his mission and its accomplishment. Let us take our time, sit back, and probe these verses. Let us take a fresh look and allow Jesus to speak to us as well as to the Father. So we are at this uh, verse, which I will say, this chapter, which I would say is deep. Now, I, I shouldn't preference a chapter this way. What I am saying, it's deep only on the surface of things because it's, the Jesus, it's not Jesus talking to his disciples, it's Jesus talking to the Father. And not just, Father, uh, thank you that you heard me. Uh, that, you know. No, it's, it's an ex quite a lot said here in prayer between Jesus and the Father. So from that perspective, we could say it's deep. We can learn a lot just looking at uh, what is said and where the motivation is here, uh, what's at hand. There's a lot that we can consider. So let's dig in and see what we have here. I think we hopefully have enough time to, to look at verse 1. Interesting uh, in introduction, part of it is to say that uh, I thought we might have an easy day of it because, you know, usually verse 1s are, uh, you know, just more an introduction, but not so. It, we are thrust right right into some pretty interesting things that we'll get to. So uh, let's look at the first phrase. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. And I, my first thing is, said what? What did he say? And we would have to turn back to what he said in chapter 16, verse 33. Uh, I have told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Uh, so when we, when we look at John 16.33, what we find is John 16.33 refers back to other things that he has said. <clears throat> so uh, we could say that as Jesus finished his discourse to the disciples, and that would include the entire discourse. I'm not just going to go back to John 16. I would say it is the entire discourse that is mentioned. Uh, I quoted John 16:33 because of what he says. I have told you these things. What things? Really is the entire discourse. It started in really chapter 13 when Jesus told the disciples that he was going away. And uh, even though he might have said a few other things, the disciples didn't hear any of it because they were upset. Peter finally cornered him. He said, well, what do you mean you're going away? Why can't we come with you? And Jesus explained uh, himself in a little more detail. So we got chapter 14, which says, don't let your hearts be troubled. 
believe in God, also believe what I'm telling you. And then he goes on and this is the discourse. I'm just pointing out in the the first point here that uh, the things that are previous are the things in John 16, 33, which, but those things relate to things that are prior to that even. So point B, there does not appear to be any lapse of time between the two chapters. And this is John 16 and 17. I mean, this is literally right on the heels of the end of the discourse to the disciples. Uh, So there's no lapse of time between the two chapters. Jesus, so when he's talking about in a little while this will happen and very soon, uh, he, he really means it. I mean, it's very soon. And we see there are prophecies where Jesus talks about him coming back in the rapture and, you know, uh, where he says, I'm going to come back and receive you unto myself. That uh, All of that is soon coming, but the soon could take a long time. But this soon is very soon. It's right at the door. So there's no, uh, there's no lapse between the two chapters. Jesus turned from uh, the disciples and begins to address the Father. So I would imagine, yeah, the disciples were there and hearing these words. And I'm, I mean, we, we have these words prophetically, uh, even if the disciples were not there. God, the Holy Spirit, could have given this to John. But we are uh, given this through the Holy Spirit to John, who was probably a witness to hearing audibly Jesus pray to the Father. Point C. Chapter 16 would be the last time Jesus addressed the disciples prior to their going through what I call the emotional roller coaster. Now, of course, he may have addressed them after that, but he was in a resurrection body at this point. He would never address them prior to his death, burial, and resurrection. This is the last time, and we're talking discourse-wise that Jesus would uh, address them theologically. Um, and and I, not to say that it's a different Jesus, but yeah, it's he's the resurrected Christ now. A lot of what is said post-resurrection would be understood from a different point of view. Uh, they know Jesus is the Christ. They know he's the son of God. They believe in him. They have salvation. But now they see power of God and the approval of this person who uh, they have been following for three and a half years. So yes, it is very significant uh, of, you know, the fact that he comes and he still talks to him. He's, he's there with them 40 days after the resurrection. And this is prior to him actually leaving at Pentecost or, or actually, no, it's not at Pentecost, but he was with the disciples for 40 days. Ten days, they remained in Jerusalem, and then Pentecost came. Pentecost is typically 50 days after the Passover. So after Christ died, 50 days later, Pentecost. And that's, that's exactly how it went down. So point D, uh, to note, the discourse should be complete and thorough enough to prepare the disciples for the roller coaster and the new dispensation to begin 
at Pentecost. So what, what I'm saying here is, since this is his last theological discourse to the, the 11, uh, I would note that Jesus got to say whatever he wanted or needed to say to the disciples. What he said to them was not just, oh, um, I, I, you know, I, didn't, I forgot to tell him this, or that would probably be me after I'm thinking about it. I'm, oh, man, I sure, sure should have told him about this, or I should have told him about that. But no, Jesus told the disciples everything that he could. There was much more to tell them that he tells them. There was much more, but he can't tell them now. He'll tell them later after the fact. And so, but everything he needed to tell them, it was complete. He did tell them. And so for us to look at those verses, uh, you know, this discourse, it should be very valuable to us. This information should not only be valuable, but directional. We have the much more information, but here we have directly from the person of Jesus on the ground telling the disciples this information. So it's important, which is why we're studying it. That's one of the reasons. Point E, Jesus was under lots of pressure. We should know uh, for him to know what happened. And then, right after he leaves here, we should note that he goes through what we would call the Garden of Gethsemane experience. That was where he prayed, and he's, you know, he was under tremendous pressure, and he sweat great, even drops of blood uh, came through the pores of his skin. And that just shows the tremendous pressure he was under. Even just think about all of that was going to happen to him in the next few moments when he walked, he left and he went out and they crossed over into um, the garden and, and then he told the disciples, go, you know, I'm going to go over here and pray. He took Peter, James, and John further and then he, took, and he went about a stone's throw from there. And um, he, just think about it, the pressure that he was under. Uh, and often, Jesus prayed to the Father. And so I would say this is a good example for us to follow when we are pressured. And we are going to be pressured in this world. I, I know uh, you, you could probably point back to some pressure times in your life, each of you, all of us. And so what we can know is that God has not left us. He's there with us. He's going through whatever it is we're going through uh, with us. So you could see Jesus drawing closer to the Father. And a couple of verses I have, have here, Luke 5. I'm going to see what those verses are. Um, Luke 5, 13 through 16. That one says... It says, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. So Jesus is busy healing. Uh, the crowds are press, pressing in on him. Verse 14, then Jesus ordered him, Do not, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for you, cleansing for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet, 
the news about him. When it says yet, in other words, even though Jesus said that, it spread quickly. You know, they say bad news travels fast. Well, good news travels fast too, as you can see. This news spread all the more. And when it says all the more, now you know, if you didn't know, why Jesus told people, don't tell, you know, he would heal people, but he would say, just keep it to yourself. Don't tell anybody about this. And in this case, these were lepers. So there was a procedure before the lepers could be entered back into society. They had to go to the priest, make sure. The priest would have to check them. So Jesus said, go follow that process. And, uh, but don't tell anybody else. Don't be on the way. Hey, guess what happened to me? I got healed. Jesus did it. Because what would happen? He would not be able to move. He would be so inundated with people and requests and appealing. And all day long, he wouldn't be able to move. He wouldn't be able to go to the places that he needed to go. So 15 says, yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came near to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. And listen, Jesus healed them all. Mark brings that out just very poignantly. Uh, he healed them all. But Look at verse 16. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. He, he, he pursued the solitude and the communion and fellowship with his father. He needed that. If you want to say he derived strength from his fellowship with the father, it kept his resolve. It kept his focus on the father's plan and his mission ever before him. So think about that in times of pressure situations that we have. It's a good example to us, I would say, that we, we should take. We should make sure that when we are pressured or you know, pressed out of measure, that we ground ourselves by taking some time, making sure we commune with the Father. That helps. That helps us establish our the boundaries and the communion and fellowship with the one who has called us into this, this world. So let's continue. We, this first section we got. Um, so here, point number two, Jesus says, Father, as he's talking in prayer to the Father, the hour has come. So the hour has come. And point A here is the time. In other words, the time has come. So Jesus is saying, you know, a lot of times when you uh, read the Gospels, Jesus would say, even at the wedding feast when his mother asked him, uh, can't you do this one miracle? And, and Jesus said, my hour has not come. In other words, it's not time for me to, to start this ministry yet. Uh, but he did it anyway. But uh, he could, uh, he, would, he would be often seen saying his hour has not yet come. And, but here, that's over. He's saying, it, I, this is it. The time has come. Judas is already off and would soon be leading a detachment of temple guards and many others to arrest Jesus. And we, let's look at a couple of these verses just to clarify what, what I mean here. I mean, we're talking, if he leaves where he is, he goes 
to the Garden of the Gethsemane, he prays. Remember that the disciples couldn't even stay awake even an hour. And three times he goes back and visits them and they were sleeping. And then, and then next thing you know, Judas is coming with the attachment of temple guards and chief priests and the Pharisees and others to arrest him. Uh, so we'll get to some, some of the, this thought. Um, just a minute. So, so here it is. Uh, let me just see. Wait a minute. So John thirteen twenty seven is the first reference. And that's just really about Jesus uh, telling Judas, go ahead. And um, let, me, let me get it. John thirteen twenty seven. Yeah, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. And I'll continue. But no one uh, at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him, since Judas had charge of the money. So they didn't understand, but Jesus did. He was dismissing Judas. And now we have the 11. And then in verse 13, 31, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him and so forth. It goes on, Jesus recognizes, and he begins his discourse. Really, the discourse starts in 13, as you should know. So, this, this thought um, is time. And then 18.3 is where, uh, right after the, with the prayer, Jesus says, So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. So this is this kind of ties it all together. The hour has come. In other words, this is it. I'm going to be arrested, and you're going to. This is things are going to change from here on out. So that happened, as you can see in Scripture. Point B: the ordeal is about to begin, and he acknowledges this and looks to the one in whom he knows fully understands his next steps. So that's John 16 and 32. And I'll just read that. Every, <coughs> all of these verses are pretty close together. John 16, 32 says, A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. So again, we, we, we spoke about what it meant to uh, commune with the Father in prayer. You see Jesus. He did, and he recognized that, yeah, you guys are going to flee. You're going to run. That's okay. I'm not alone. The Father is with me. We're going point C. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, and this is literally what he says. The hour has come and the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. That's Matthew 26 and 45. So point D is not only has Jesus, Jesus's hour come, <laughs> his time come, but it is also come for the disciples. And I would read John 16, 20 through 22 there. Uh, it goes like this. Twenty. He says, very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. 
A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. The time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets about the forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. So this is um, very clear how immediate of a time this is, a time frame. And Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, it's now. The time has come. And uh, this is where we are. Um, and then uh, we also have point E, the period in human, this period in human history will also be remembered and, and it confirms a prophecy from the Garden of Eden. And you, you know the prophecy in Genesis 3.15. I could turn there for you if you haven't read it. This is a very significant prophecy. Uh, stand by. Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So this is all about the seed of the woman, Christ, coming into the world and what he would do and how Satan is now obviously the ruler of this world, but uh, seed of the woman is going to come and supersede Christ, uh, uh, Satan. Um, let's see, but ultimately uh, Satan will be dethroned and it also speaks of the seed of the woman being a solution to the problems of sin that man would find themselves in. So the prophecy is expanded and clarified and codified. But if we look at Romans 3, 25 and 26, I'm going to go all the way back to Romans or to Romans 3, 25 and 26. It also speaks of that time. Here it says, God presented, 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So there is a reference to Christ coming into the world. He did this, he did it, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So there it is. This hails back all the way to Genesis, to the Garden of Eden. And it confirms that Christ is the one. He's, he's the Christ, the son of the living God. And it has come to pass in this manner that he, he literally has come into the world as the seed of the woman to pay for our sins. He's a propitiation for our sins. So we got through a couple of phrases. The hour has come, but now we get to this phrase that has two sides to it. Uh, and he says, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. So I thought we would have a break a little bit from this but no, we're going to jump right into it where it talks about the glorification of the Son. So hopefully all that we have covered so far in 14, 15, and 16 will 
make these things a little bit more understandable about the Father's eternal purpose and all of that, so that hopefully these these things will uh, will see them easily. So let's look at glorify your Son. Now this is Jesus asking the petitioning the Father to glorify Him. So let's look at this first thing. I, I, this is a long definition, but partly. And this is the word glorify, doxazo, and it means, and I could go, I'm going to read some of this, just because it's important. To think, suppose, be of opinion, to praise, extol, magnify, celebrate, that's important, to honor or do honor, to hold on, to, uh, to do honor to, hold in honor, to make glorious, adorn with luster, clothe with splendor, to impart glory or something, uh, to some or something, to something, to de- to impart glory to something, render it excellent, to make renowned, render illust- illustrious, uh, to cause the dignity and worth of some person or thing to become manifest and acknowledged. So why do I read all this and do you need to know all this? So you don't have to memorize it, that's for sure. But what you need to know is the word glory has broad meanings in scripture. And I copied all of this so you know that it's not just one thing. And if you just see it as one thing, you're not going to fully understand the use of the term, the word and all of its various meanings. So that's why I wanted to put enough here so that you could see that it's varied. It depends on the context of how glory should be understood. But there is basic definitions of how it's used in the scripture. So let's go on and we'll allow the context to determine that. Point B, how can the son be glorified? In other words, we're talking about the man, Christ Jesus, right? Who, this person who is uh, the person of Christ is also, he also has an an identity that we saw in John 1, 1 as the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And the word, he's the one who created all things. So the word was God. He's not, we're talking God. So that's a nature. God is not just, well, the name of God. God is a nature. When we when we speak of God, we're speaking of nature. When we speak of the Word, we're per, we're speaking of a person who has the nature of God. So, as far as reading John one one through three, we can see two persons who have the who are God, who are called God, and two different persons who are God. And those persons are the Word and God the Father. God the Father is not mentioned as such, but we everybody recognizes that as, that is God the Father, pretty much. All, all I've not seen any body theologically who has said that uh, that the Word was with God, meaning we, they didn't know who God is or the the God. So the Word was with the Father. The Father is the one who sent the Son, and it goes on and on. So the thought is, how can the Son 
be glorified. And this is literally what it says, by finishing the work the Father planned for him. And here's the quote, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So there's a <clears throat> there's an honor, a special honor, where Christ is praised and extolled and magnified. There's a special glory that is imparted him because he is completing the work that the Father had planned that he do. And because of this work, Christ is in a position to stand to be glorified. In other words, praised, celebrated, honored as a result of his accomplishment of the Father's plan. So that's how we have to see it. So here is the hours come the Son of Man and be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, here it is. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. That's John 12, 23, and 24, what Jesus said this. So when he says the hour has come, he's again referring to this point in time where the Son of Man is to be glorified. And how does that happen? He, he, he goes to this analogy about a kernel of wheat falling to the ground and dying, and if it remains only a seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So it dies, it germinates, and then it produces many seeds. And that's a reference to the church age because we are directly related to Christ in this manner. He dies, and as a result, we come with the same uh, kind of, that he is. We are even said to be in Christ. If anybody is in Christ, there are a new creation. So this designation, the way this happens, never happened in Israel. This is only something that is unique to the church. It produces many seeds. That's us, the church, in Christ. So uh, that's how the Son is glorified. And Jesus already knows this. It's not that he's learning this and saying, Father, am I to be glorified? He knows that he's going to be glorified in this role of what he's doing. So he just says, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. So we're just on that one phrase, glorify your son. We're just trying to understand why he said it and what it means. So point C, the glory, the, uh, the, uh, the, glory the son is to receive is according to to the Father's eternal plan. So that's how we should think about this. This is not a reference to Israel. Now, obviously, Christ has to go through the death, burial, and resurrection, ascension, and session before all of this comes to pass because only through the baptism of the Spirit where we are identified with the person of Christ, we are baptized, as it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we are baptized into the body of Christ. So if anybody ever asks you, how do you get to be in Christ? Well, it is this work where baptism into the body of Christ. When we talked about producing many seeds. This is the process for producing many seeds, the, the baptism of the Spirit. So, so I'm going to read a couple of these scriptures just to be sure. This is not Jesus 
puffing his you know sticking his chest out and saying uh this is i'm gonna glorify myself here this is john 8 50. we'll go through these quickly this is like a bible study here that's what it should be john 8 50 i am not speaking or speaking i am not seeking glory for myself just hold on right there i am not seeking glory for myself that's important because a lot of false messiahs when they came on the scene that's exactly what they were doing they were seeking glory for themselves they were trying to build themselves up but here's what christ says it's not about me but there is one notice who seeks it and he is the judge right so christ is saying i'm not trying to glorify myself but the plan the father's eternal plan has me as Lord, and I'm, I'm going to receive glory as a result of the position I am in. Uh, and this is why we talk about the Father's eternal purpose, Christ completing that. He's saying, glorify your Son now, and that, that's important for, for us to see. So, and then there's Philippians, uh, oh, and 54, let's look at verse 54, where Jesus says, Jesus, this is John 8, 54. If, you, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. There it is. It's, if Jesus is puffing his chest out and saying who he is and why he should be receiving praise and why, what he has accomplished, then it's nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. And then I'd like to read verse 55. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar uh, like you. But I do, I do know him and, ha and obeyed his word. So Jesus points out again, it's not about me glorifying me. It's the Father glorifying me. So now he's saying, the hour's come. Father, you go ahead and glorify your son. So this is, a, this is Christ. You know how we can speak... Uh, retrospectively, meaning of things in the past, <clears throat> you're going to find in John 17, Jesus is speaking futuristically. He's speaking of things in the future as, as though they are present. So Christ didn't go to the cross yet. He didn't die. He didn't get raised. He didn't go through all of that. But in his mind, he already did it because he's going to do it for sure. It didn't happen yet, but it will happen. So in his prayer to the Father, notice it, it is as though, he's speaking as though these things are now. The reality of God is the Father's eternal plan. And so when you tap into the reality of God, you can talk about the parts of the plan as though they were past, present, or future. Because you're tapping into the reality of the Father's eternal purpose. It is sure. Nothing can change it, alter it. It is what is according to the Father's consciousness, his reality. So that is important to note that Jesus is able to speak from this perspective. So, um, and then there's Philippians 2, 9, 11, right? Uh, let's see, uh, Philippians to, these verses are very common, so it's not 
something I'm reading that you never saw before. Verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name. This is the glory that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and, and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So important scripture because you see this is not just God lifting up God. This is God lifting up the man, Christ Jesus. Because God, as Jesus as God, he's always had the glory of God. He's always had divinity and the, the attributes of God. There's no nothing that could be added to who he is as God, but who he is in his humanity could be lifted up. And that's exactly what Jesus is asking for. He's not asking for you to make me God. He's already God in his divine nature. He's talking about who he is in his hypostatic union as the God-man, right? The man, Christ Jesus. What about him? Well, he gets glorified as well because of what he has accomplished and not just what he has accomplished, but what God is able to accomplish through him. So we're going back to our notes and we're going to point D. Jesus is Lord and, re and receives special glory from the Father because of the many sons being brought into glory through him according to the Father's eternal plan. <clears throat> and really, if we read John 17, 10, let's look at it. Uh, John 17 and 10, it says, all I have is yours and all you have is mine. If we just stop there for a second, that's mutual possession. Christ is saying everything I am as a man here on this earth, as the, the only begotten son, everything I have is yours. But then he turns that around and says, and all you have is mine. That's mutual possession. And so notice how mutual possession flourishes. This is a good description of it. It is a full surrender of everything who you are. And Jesus surrendered to the Father completely. He even said, everything I say is about the Father. It's not about me, it's about the Father. Even the words I speak are the Father's words. Father tells me exactly what to say and how to say it. All of that, are those are quotes from, from what we have seen in John. And then he says, and all you have is mine. Now, who's he talking? He's talking to the Father. He's praying to the Father. And he's not saying, I'm giving you. He says, this is already there. I already have surrendered myself to you so that you can fully use me on the earth. And then he says, all you have is mine. And that's a reference to the Father's eternal purpose being deposited in the person of Christ, right? All things are now in, uh, in heaven and earth are now in one person, in, the, in, in Christ. So the Father has given him all things. All things are yours, he says. And, uh, and now this is how the Father has surrendered everything to him just like Christ has surrendered everything to the Father. So then here's us coming into the picture in this next phrase, watch. 
and glory has come to me through them. Who's them? He's talking about us now. So here, all three, so you've got all I have is the mutual possession, all I have is yours, and all you have is mine. Now, now get this, later, the mutual possession is said of us, right? He says in verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. There is mutual possession again. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. So I'm going back to our verse and glory in verse 10 and glory has come to me through them. So the glory that Jesus is telling, asking the father, father, now, okay, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. So, so that glorifying the son is a result of Christ finishing the work, but the work is not just about him dying for the sins of the world. The work has to do with us. And Christ is the Father's eternal purpose, the plan of the Father. And glory has come to me through them, right? This is, there is a special glory that comes. Now we're not at verse three or, or five, is it? Where Christ says, and now Father glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. There's a lot more to cover. And I don't want to get ahead of myself and start teaching the whole thing because I want to do it verse by verse. We're going to take our time, go through it slowly and methodically and hopefully organize in an organized way. In this way, there's a lot to get here, but I just want you to see what Christ is saying at this point. So this glory is special. And what did I say in my notes here? Uh, Jesus is Lord and receives special glory from the Father because of the many sons being brought into glory through him, according to the Father's eternal plan. That is the Father's eternal plan. And Romans 8.29 says it, says as much. 8.29 says, um, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among, among many brothers and sisters. Uh, I should just say, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So what we have here are words that speak of before time began, just like when the word was with God and the word himself was God and they were face to face with one another. We're talking about what happened. What God planned all of this. And Jesus is the person in whom all of this would be able to be accomplished. And so he's, Paul is recognizing that. And look, we have the language that flows in Romans around this thought. But here Jesus is, is speaking of it as well when he says, glorify your son. So point E, point E. So, the Son receives glory in two ways. Now, let's look at the two ways the Son receives glory. One, as the Savior and ruler of the world. The Lord says to my Lord, this is a quote, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So, that's Psalm 110.1. So that's also quoted again in Hebrews, but 
I just wanted to make sure we understood that was from the Old Testament. And the sun is going to be lifted up. Like it says, wait until your enemies be made a footstool for your feet. Sit at my right hand. So this was all known in the Old Testament. This is not that Christ would sit at the right hand, place of highest honor. Why? Because he's the savior of the world. That's, that's, and, and not only is he savior of the world, but he's ruler of the world. He defeated Satan. He gained uh, the, uh, the right to ascend to rulership over earth. And now he sat down at the, at the right hand of God until the time is right when God is going to bring Christ forward. So we're talking about the man, Christ Jesus, the glorified humanity and, and who, who that person is and and his hypostatic, what we call hypostatic union. So that's the first thing. That's one reason for why Christ should receive glory. He is the focal point. It is through Christ that uh, everybody in the world, whoever they are in Adam, can look to in order to be saved. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. All of this is revolving around the person of Christ. Christ said, uh, the Father said, uh, if you believe in him, you will have eternal life. You will not come into judgment. You will cross over from death to life. You will have, like it says, you, you, will, you will see this new eternal life. And this is important. If, if Christ is the very focal point for that, then yes, he receives that glory. And then point number two in our notes, as the one with whom the Father accomplishes his, his eternal purposes. Now, these were hidden in God before time began. This, these things were not known. Uh, they weren't revealed to Israel. And this is what a quote, quote, I have given them the glory that you gave me. Now, listen, we are really in play here in John 17, 5. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. So the same relationship that he has with the Father is the same relationship that we have with him. We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and notice, this is unprecedented. I have given them the glory that you gave me? Why should we receive glory? That's a whole nother thought. But right now we're talking about glorifying the Son. But we gotta get into why should we receive glory? There's gotta be some reason because Isaiah said, my glory I will not share with another. There is no person, no other one who can receive glory. And so God is, this is Old Testament. But now we see in the New Testament that we are identified with Christ. Who is identified with the Father? Who is the one who receives glory? And he says, I'm giving that glory to them as well, that they may be one as we are one. We have to think about the implications of that. We'll get to it. Now I want to look at verse 22 in, uh, there as well. Uh, so John 17, 22 says, this is toward the end here. 
I have given, again, I have given them glory, gave me that they may, oh, that was the one we already read. Hold on. I think I, I covered that. Oh, so 17, 5 and 22, right? So those are the two verses. 5 says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Wow. Before the world began, there was glory. And then in 22, he says, I have given them the glory you have given me. So is that the same glory? Yes. It is the same glory that Jesus is asking the Father to give him in verse 1, as it is in verse 5, as it is in verse 22. Same glory. We got to talk about that a lot more. There's a lot more detail, so I want to stay on track here. Back to your notes. Back to your notes. So those are the two things, the two ways... Uh, that the Son receives glory. One, he's Savior and Lord because of the work, and he is destined to rule the world. And then two, because he accomplishes the Father's eternal purposes, which were not known in the Old Testament at all, but we know them now. And we know them uh, in such a clear and defined way. So point number four, and there's much more that can be said. I should stop and say for about glorifying the Son. There's way too much information. I tried to pick verses that were directional and it would help you uh, understand the direction God has gone in his eternal plan. Uh, you look at the other verses. There are plenty of verses that deal with this. Okay, point number four, that your Son may glorify you first thought is both the Father and Son and the Son receive glory for the eternal plan. Not just one, but both of them are said to receive glory. I'm just going to throw a couple verses out. John 5, 23. Let's look at that one first. John 5 and 23 uh, says, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Hmm, interesting. So wait, wait, wait. So, so you're saying the man Christ Jesus, the Son, shall receive the same honor. Didn't say less than. The same way that you honor the Father, you are to honor the Son. Honor is praise. Honor is to glory, glorify. And so when you, that is off the chart. Now, when, when you think about that, you're talking about, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's who we're talking about. And Later, as we're going to see, that's who we're united to, that person who here it says that all may honor the Son in the same way, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. And when you read what was happening in John 8, where Jesus had that skirmish with the Pharisees and they were going back and forth, you see why Jesus is saying they are not honoring Jesus. They are disparaging him. They said he was a demon. They went way beyond dishonoring him. So we can know where they stand, don't we? They don't honor the father who sent him. 
interesting. So, and then um, we're also looking at verse 17, 4, John 17, 4, in this regard, it says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. So, so first he said, glorify your son in verse 1. Here in verse 4, he's saying, I have brought you glory on earth. Who did he bring glory to? The Father. How did he do it? By just praising him? No, by finishing the work you gave me to do. In other words, because the work of the work you gave me to do, I am able to be the pattern for every person to be conformed to my image. I am able to now, like we said earlier, if a seed falls to the ground and dies, it dies alone. But if it if there is a single seed alone, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. And that's exactly what God the Father was able to do through the person and work of Christ. He says, I brought you glory. That brings the Father glory. Why does he get glory? Because it's his plan. And in this plan, there are two who receive glory. Is the one who, uh, I guess we're getting into the notes. Let's just let the, the notes say it as well. Uh, so uh, here in the notes, the Father gets glory. This is point B. Uh, for articulating formulating the plan. The Son gets glory for executing the plan. We get glory because we are united, united to the Son, which is the plan. I hope you understand point B is very important that you do. Why? Because it shows why we get glory and the fact that if we don't get glory, then that is the plan of the Father is not... Uh, executed. But the fact that the Father was able to bring many sons into glory through the person of Christ in this manner, it, it extols him. It glorifies the plan that he initially had before time began. Where Christ says, well, I was the glory I had with you before the world began. It's about the plan. And so point C, here are some quotes. I have brought you glory on earth. Here it is, by finishing the work you gave me to do. That's John 17, 4. And then Philippians 2, 11, it also talks about the glory of the Father. That all this happens, Jesus is raised to heights, right? Because of his suffering and all of that, the Father highly exalted him. And all of it said in verse 11, to the glory of the Father. Why is the Father glorified? Because the Father is the one who had the plan. It was his uh, plan that he deposited, he gave to the Son. Point D, quote, but he comes so that the world may learn, that, and here's Jesus's comment, that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. That's John 14, 31. But Jesus is expressing there not only his love for the Father, but his love for the Father is expressed in his obedience to the Father's plan. And that is important because if not, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about what we're talking about today. It would be impossible. Point E, the Father receives glory because 
of his eternal purpose. Now we got to read this one. It's Ephesians 3, 8 through 11, which we have read before. But why should the Father receive glory? Ephesians 3, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, 8 through 11. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, that's the plan, should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, angelic beings. They didn't know anything about the mystery. And But all of this is, verse 11, according to his eternal purpose, that he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. There it is. His eternal purpose that he purposed in Christ Jesus. He accomplished, rather, in Christ Jesus our Lord. This ties everything we've been talking about together as to why the Father receives glory. And what is his eternal purpose? That this is his plan. Point F. We are an essential part of the Father's plan in a special way. So Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 9. Let's just read that real quick. Here it says, Praise be to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That praise is a part of glorifying the Father. Praise and glory be to the Father, you could say who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And here's, here's how it all happens. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of, his, of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. So all of that speaks of not only why the Father, what he planned, how will he executed it through and accomplished it through the Lord Jesus Christ? And they both receive praise, but especially the Father here as well. So, uh, and then that was point F. We are closing point G. I know we're over time here. In order that, this is a quote, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. The fact that we come along, the fact that we are born into this world, selected at a particular point in time in human history, and then we come to believe in Christ, and God is able to baptize us into the body of Christ. That's what is important. Now, how do we know that that's exactly what we say in in Ephesians 1.11, this is where Paul is saying we're in the first generation of believers. We did it. We were the first 
to hope in Christ. And that's verse 12, rather. We are the first to put our hope in Christ. It might be for the praise of his glory. God did accomplish what he planned from eternity past with this first generation of believers who were baptized into Christ. Paul says, I'm one of them. I'm one of them. And verse 13, and you also were included in Christ. So he's not just talking about salvation. He's talking about being in Christ. That's to the praise of his glory. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, this is how it happened. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. There you have it again. This is God's glory, that you are part of this, that you are included in Christ. And we talked about us being in Christ, proximity to the Father, and we're one as he's one. There's much more to talk about, much more to cover as we go forward in John chapter 17 and verse 1 and following. We're going to end this one, but next week we'll continue along this thought. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you so much as we review the record and see what you have caused us to be. We are thankful for all of the moving parts. We're thankful that you had this plan, that we are a part of it, that you chose us in him before the creation of the world, that you blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, that you chose us in him, you adopted us, you, predest you foreknew us, you predestined us, you justified and will glorify us. So we thank you for this message. We thank you for the people that are here uh, that are a part of this glorious plan. And we pray that you will continue to open our eyes, give us wisdom as we approach the passages of scripture that are ahead of us. All this we ask in the precious name of our Lord and for his sake. Amen. 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 Amen.